I'll go back to when I was on the management, on the executive team at Palo Alto Software, and I got the CEO of the company on an interview with Ariana Huffington. And mm-hmm. they served on the same panel together. And Ariana was asked this question. And I love her response because I use it now. She says, there is no such thing as work-life balance. When you're an executive or you're a CEO, it's work-life integration. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 191 of the Command of Voice. Today, I speak with the CEO of Rain Catalyst. Please welcome Caroline Cummings. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview local business owners, comedians, singers, and more. I dive into their backstory to find out how they got where they are, what are some of the tips for you to do the same, and find out where they are going. Tune in every week as I interview more of the people you see every day. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. Hope you guys are doing well. I um, hope you guys are getting back into the swing of, if you have kids, the school and the sports and the extra activities and all the other things that come along with fall. Welcome back. We are in the craziness of that, and I am feeling that. We've got two of our kids in soccer, um, two of our kids in swimming. So we have practice Monday through Thursday, and then we have two games on Saturday, and we are just getting started, not to mention school and all the other stuff. So that is where I am at. <laughs> Hope you guys are um, doing well and, and getting ready to, you know, really just jump into this season. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, besides that, I don't think there's a whole lot else to, to really talk about or announce yet. Um, we're... Um, yeah, kind of entering into that September slowdown time. So it's good. It's a time to recoup and prepare for Christmas, which we are doing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about all of that. So um, yeah, without that, uh, I'm just going to jump into this part. So I get to speak today with Caroline Cummings. And if, if um, I met Caroline through the project I did the beginning of this year with the Rain Catalyst Group. Um, I actually did a contract position with them where we were helping spread, um, you know, entrepreneurial classes and stuff like that throughout the Skagit and Island counties. Uh, and so I got to help with um, getting those uh, organized and um, getting people together to do those classes. They were really um, received very well. Everyone really enjoyed them, thought they were really great. Uh, so she is the CEO of Rain Catalyst. So I, I obviously did an interview with her for that position. And um, I got to work with two other people in the area um, as the like boots on the ground people, another person on Whidbey and someone in Skagit. Um, both of them were fantastic to work with. Um, and so we had a really, uh, really successful program. It went really well. We had a crazy timeline we were trying to do everything in, but we did it. Um, and a lot of that is due to Caroline. She does... Uh, she's an incredible lady. She's done so much um, and, and built her career and done um, just so many different things. As we get into the stories of her background, you'll find out all the different places she's worked, all of her different experiences. Um, but what she does with Rain is just really cool. It's, it's actually now international because they've actually been invited into Palestine uh, to help build uh, women entrepreneurs. And... Um, so uh, the reach is, is really wide. And in fact, they've even been invited by the U.S. government for a very specific program because of how well Rain Catalyst runs and does 
um, its trainings and its how successful those have been. Uh, they were invited into this this program where they were going to start planting these basically little entrepreneurial um, uh, contractors that would help out do kind of what I did, but on a bigger scale and with more resources. Um, and Rain was invited into that program to help. How do we do this better? Um, so fantastic uh, program that they run. Uh, it's a great organization. Check out raincatalyst.org, um, um, which of course we'll have in the show notes. Um, but we get into all sorts of things and into her background. Uh, she has some great startup uh, history as well. So we're going to get into all sorts of things business related. So if you are a business owner or have any aspirations to be so, uh, this is a podcast for you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Caroline Cummins. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Commando Voice. Today, I'm here with the CEO of Rain Catalyst. Welcome to the podcast, Caroline Cummings. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Caroline. Okay. So I actually grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey, right outside of Atlantic City, and also lived in Atlantic City for a little bit. And the, my initial experience in life, my parents were, we were actually homeless for the first few years. There were four kids Wow! and we couch hopped from family member to family member and ended up eventually settling in at my grandparents' house in Atlantic city, my Italian grandparents until my parents could figure out what to do next. So they, in those days, you know, it's Irish, Italian, Catholic family, and you just keep having babies and you're not really doing proper family planning. <laughs> and, and, and so it was kind of interesting to come to that realization later in life. But fortunate that we had family members there to take care of us. So eventually my family was able to build a house. And that's really where I grew up in a town called Mays Landing, which in New Jersey, it goes by township. So it's called Egg Harbor Township. And we would spend every Wednesday and Sunday at my Sicilian grandmother's house having dinner. Mm -hmm. And I really learned a lot about the importance of family and food and sitting around the table. Even if you're arguing, it's okay as long as you're all together. (laughs) (laughs) I think that makes such a big difference. Yeah. Um, And then once, once I became a teenager, my parents split. And the family kind of, you know, spread out a little bit. And my grandmother, the Italian grandmother, ended up turning her 13-bedroom house into like a boarding home for us. My brother, his girlfriend, myself, my cousin, my my aunt from Philadelphia would come down. And it was really fun. And luckily, we had a place to land there, very structured, like, you know, certain times of hours and times that you had to be in. But it was definitely a non-traditional upbringing that I didn't realize until I was older and started talking to other people about their childhoods. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That's, that's quite the, the environment to grow up in. Absolutely. I mean the unstable part, but the love, right. It's like, there's love there. And and I've mentored a lot of at-risk youth who had instability and not a lot of love. And those two combinate, that's like the lethal combination. Yeah. Um, but I, it, it, it brought out my independence and my early signs of entrepreneurship were there. And I noticed them in other young people, you know, just being rebellious and questioning authority and, 
not being okay with just the way it is. That's the way it is. And so early on, I had those signs of being a leader and an entrepreneur. I just didn't have the right mentors in place to, to you know, put point me in the right direction. So it took me time. I went to five different colleges and universities. Wow. I didn't know what I wanted to do, who I wanted to be. I was, I got a degree in psychology. I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia and FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology in New York for fashion design. I thought maybe I'll become a police officer. So I started studying criminal justice. And I eventually was like, maybe I should take some time off and figure out like who I am. <laughs> and who, what, I was interested in a lot of things and that wasn't okay, right? Like it wasn't okay. You need to pick one thing. My sister was a teacher. She went to school, got her master's degree. She knew my brother, electrical yep. engineer did that. My other brother, carpet cleaning business, right? And it was like, here's Caroline. What is she doing? Like what's happening with her over there? And so it took me, it took me some time to get on the right. Well, I shouldn't say on the right path. That was the right path for me. Yeah. The right path for me was the non-traditional, not A to Z path. And that's what I think a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to share a similar story. Yeah. And where do you fall in the, the ages of your, uh, like what, what birth order are you within your family? Yeah, I'm second. My okay. mother gave birth to four children in five years. Okay. Wow. So yes, so um, seventeen. My sister's seventeen months older than me. Then my brother's fifteen months older, and then the other brother's like thirteen months. So we're okay. talking. Yeah. So right. not not the healthiest thing to do for your body nor your family circumstance, especially if you don't come from wealth. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I love what you were talking about too when you were saying like uh, sitting around the table, even if you guys are all arguing. But we we've uh, we've got some Italian friends that are over here and. Uh, him and his wife are hysterical when they're, they're just constantly talking over each other and mid talking to you, they're also arguing with each other. And I'm like, how do you right. keep so many things going at once? Yes. It's a skill that you learn early on and there's good and bad to it for sure. <laughs> uh, very cool. Mm -hmm. So then you were kind of bouncing around and, and trying all these different things. When you finally decided to take a break, um, where did mm. that put you? Mm. So I took a five-year break. I was still living at my grandmother's home in Atlantic City. All the while, I've never stopped working from the time I was 13, 14, babysitting full-time after school. So when I took the break, I was managing a retail clothing store and also picked up on-call grave shift um, cocktail waitressing at the casino in Atlantic City. And so I would, my day would, even though a break, okay, break from, from school, but I would get up, I would go to work, I would go to class, I would eat, finally. And, <laughs> and, then, and then at around 10 p.m., I'd call in a number to say, you know, have, has any of the women called out who are cocktail waitresses? Always there was somebody who called out because it's the grave shift, right? Yep. So then I would go in and it was actually cool because the only way you could be a cocktail waitress on the floor, on the casino floor back in those days, it's probably the same now as if you had a lot of seniority. Okay. You know, they start at you in like the showroom where nobody tips. Whereas on the casino floor, you could work four hours and you could make four or $500. And that was, you know, 30 some years ago. Yeah. And it was a great way to make quick cash. But I knew I needed to get out of that because it was not, it was not a healthy environment in a lot of ways. So my five-year break was not a healthy break. I was working a lot, doing a ton. 
And then eventually knew I needed to go back to school. I had this really incredible boss who was the district manager of the retail clothing store I worked for. And she said to me, you know, Caroline, you would make a great CEO. Now, this was like late 80s, early 90s. I was like, what is a CEO? Like, what is that? (laughs) And there's no internet. There's no cell phones, right? So you have to have encyclopedias or you go to the library. And so I went to the library. I asked the librarian. He was great. He was like, there's a stack of books over there where you can read about business leadership. And over there is the stack of course catalogs for universities. Mm -hmm. And so I did research and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So everywhere I went, I became the leader. It didn't matter if it was an ice cream parlor or it was was retail or restaurants or eventually corporate America and my own businesses. So that she recognized this leadership quality. And I applied to one business school, one. I was like, I didn't know. You're supposed to apply to like 15 and I applied to one because I really liked what the course catalog cover looked like. And I liked what it said about their co-op program. It was Drexel University in Philadelphia. So because I was an older student, I was in my late 20s, you could work and and then apply for a co-op, which meant you didn't go to school, but you worked somewhere for six months and they paid you full time. Okay. Learning what you were learning in school. So I got placed at a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey, in Princeton. Mm -hmm. And then they eventually hired me. So the break was good because what I got to do was not be in my academic mind of study, 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 study. And I got to really lean into my leadership skills that I got to cultivate because I was not a very good leader in my early days. I had to learn how to be an appropriate leader. They They don't really teach you that even in MBA programs. Right. Yeah. Well, it's definitely when it comes to business and stuff, there's there's things they teach you in, in business school and stuff. And then there's things you just learn. You have to learn in business doing the work. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I ended up getting accepted to the MBA program at Drexel. And when I was at the pharmaceutical, they were paying for it. And I dropped out because it was antiquated what they were teaching. It didn't match my real world experience of leading here. I I'm in, responsible for a $4 million budget within a pharmaceutical and nothing I'm learning is applicable. So I was like, I'm out of here now. Granted today, Drexel has an incredible entrepreneurship MBA program that didn't exist. The word entrepreneur wasn't even a cool thing or talked right. about, right? you know, like it, like it is today and has been for the last 15 years. So I feel fortunate in a lot of ways that I just sort of landed in all these great places. Mm-hmm. Nice. So then you started up working full-time with the pharmaceutical company. Um, Where did you go after that? So that's when, so I was there for six years. And while I was at the pharmaceutical, I still wait at tables every weekend at um, Dave and Buster's in Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd go in and make my quick 300 bucks on the weekend. Um, But after that, so I had met my husband and he lived on the West Coast in Oregon. We both grew up in New Jersey. So okay. it was a reconnection of sorts. And we got together and it was, does he move to Philly or do I move to Oregon? And I always wanted to move to the West Coast. I just never thought about Oregon. Yeah, uh, I thought more about, you know, LA, San Francisco, even Seattle. Okay. I never, didn't know much about Oregon other than you know, it, it was beautiful and the capital was Salem. That was pretty much what I knew. <laughs> a lot of ignorance on the east, the you know, the northeast part of the country about what goes on out here. Um, and so 
I moved out here. It was uh, the day I arrived, the day I pulled in in my little Jetta with my cat uh, was for, was April Fool's Day, 2004. Okay. <laughs> so I probably should have either driven a little faster to get here a day earlier, or slowed down to not arrive on April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of funny story. Um, and then really that's when I became an accidental entrepreneur because everywhere I was used to that corporate world, everywhere I applied, there was no, there were no jobs anywhere close to what I was accustomed to getting paid. Yeah. And everybody wanted me to start back down here. And I was like, mm, no, I've, I've been through a lot. I've have a lot of management and leadership experience. I've managed million dollar budgets and I've, was at Bristol Myers Squibb when we did the acquisition of DuPont Pharmaceuticals. So I was doing big things. Yeah. And it was hard. And so when, when I got a lot of either job offers that were not equivalent to what I was willing to accept, I just went on to the state's website and incorporated. And I started a consulting business. It was called CC Consulting for my initials. Mm-hmm. And I just started doing marketing and business development in the tech space because that's what my experience was at the pharmaceutical. I was on the technology side. Okay. Just helping people, you know, whatever they needed to grow their businesses. Yeah. And, and what did that, how did you start uh, growing that business? I am a really good salesperson. And I know that when I first came here, networked the heck out of the place. Okay. To the point that my husband had been here, um, I think, 12 years before me, longer than me. And, and I knew way more people than he did in like a month. Yeah. Right. And so, because I'm like, let's get out there, let's join, let's go to this chamber event, let's do this. And then I started my own group called smart ups, which was for other entrepreneurs who wanted to gather because there was no ecosystem, entrepreneurial ecosystem in place like there is now. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't find venture funding. You couldn't find mentors. There was no like structure in place like what we do at Rain Catalyst where you go, oh, I'm going to go to you. You can connect me to the right resource. That didn't exist. So I started this thing called Smart Ups. Basically, they were pub talk events that we held at a restaurant bar. Okay. And I would bring in, I would just call people like, hey, you're a successful tech CEO. You're a successful food CEO. Would you come speak to this group? And it grew and it was profitable. And then I gifted it to the Eugene Chamber of Commerce. And that was the precursor to Rain. Okay. That, that was so, so there's sort of this interesting flow of how Rain Catalysts became to be as a result of my early days of landing here in Oregon. Yeah. Very cool. So then uh, after you hand the, that off to the chamber and you kept, did, were you continuing your consulting business then? Yeah, I had that consulting business. I was doing a lot of different projects because I'm good at sales. I was helping people do sales. Most people hate sales. Mm-hmm. And or if they even if they like it, a lot of people aren't very good at it. I was very good at it. And I think that was because of my early entrepreneurship struggles, like my my youth, right? Like you had to be clever, you yes. had to be creative and do it in ways that were respectful. Um, <laughs> so I ended up doing a lot of different things. And I was on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters for a while, and then I helped them do fundraising. I was a development director for them. And then I um, joined a couple different tech companies doing some consulting. And then I met this woman that she was getting her MBA, and 
I was studying about sustainability around change management, which I was also doing at the pharmaceutical before I left. Mm-hmm. So together we were like, let's start a business. And so that we started our first tech company together, which was called Oso Eco, which was basically Pinterest three years before it ever existed. Okay. But imagine if you're just pinning health and wellness products. Okay. We, we were too niched. We were way early. Twitter didn't even exist. Like there were a lot of you know, Facebook didn't have a revenue model. There was this whole social bookmarking was a new thing. Yeah. And we were too early. We our timing was off. And even though we did raise um, about six hundred and fifty thousand dollars in capital, the company failed. Okay. And and then um, started another company with a couple of guys who were already in a real estate tech company. And they had an idea. It was not my idea. It was their idea to do mobile marketing in the real estate industry. So they seed funded the company 250000 And then I hired a team. And really, it was to build and prove a piece of technology and then to do a tech acquisition, mm-hmm. not the whole company. So it, it, it was a great experience, but wouldn't have been able to do what we did in that company if I hadn't had all the failures in the previous startup. I mean, yeah. The, there are about 10 reasons why startups fail. We made six or seven of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to go back to uh, Oso Eco real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, that process, the whole startup process, um, we've seen it on, you know, a lot of people have seen television or, or movies or things where they talk about and they kind of go through that process. Um, but at that tail end, when, when things are going wrong and you guys have to make that final call of it's not working, Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Because I don't think a lot of people know what that process looks like. Yeah, it's like Kenny Rogers' song, "No When to Fold," <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's it it is. It's really hard because it's your baby, and you've put so much time in it, and you've raised all this money from people who believe in us. And it was like, ah, oh, this isn't going to go. And so I was the one holding on at the very end. Our board voted to dissolve. My co-founder voted to dissolve. I didn't want to because I knew we had a cool idea. And it was a great idea, right? Look at Pinterest. It's just that we were we had a bunch of things we didn't do right. And I was the last man, woman standing, not wanting to let go. But of course, we had to let go because of the board decision. I was outvoted. And that process was so hard because everyone responds differently. Mm-hmm. My co-founder had a beautiful response. She remodeled her kitchen. Um, me, I had no money. I lost, you know, almost $50,000 of my own money. I had didn't come from money. And yeah. so it was really hard for me. And so what I did, my therapy was I called every investor we ever pitched to. I called every CEO I met and I asked them, why did the companies that you invested in fail? Why did the CEOs have previous failed companies? Like, why did they fail? And I started to develop this top 10 list that I mentioned earlier. And then I was like, huh, we made six of those mistakes. And I then went around and started delivering that to MBA programs, undergrad business programs, accelerator, anybody who would listen. I would say, you want to, do you want to hear this? So that was my therapy was talking about failure yeah. And the importance of not being afraid to talk about failure because it is a part of any business venture. It yep. doesn't matter how small or big you will fail and you have to know and build that muscle. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, what are those 10 steps? 
or 10 things that you guys, that you determined? Well, the number one and number two are really big. They're, they're the two biggies. One is the wrong team and two is the wrong timing. So if you don't have the right team in place, but you could have the best idea, it's not going to go. Yeah. Right. Because it's, you, we, and now that, you know, I invest in startups and help catalyze seed funds and coach a lot of companies. We know now, like you invest in people, products and ideas second, right? Yes. Like you have to invest in people. It's people who you partner with. And, and so the wrong team and then the wrong timing, we had the wrong market timing. We were three years too, too soon for this social bookmarking and page scraping. And, uh, you know, the, even the programming language we were using was new Ruby and Ruby on rails. So oh, yeah. it was, it was like way early and those are the top two. Others are, you know, you remain stealth too long. Like I, I can't tell you how many companies I help. Oh, I can't launch yet. It's not perfect. And so, you yeah. know, being slow to launch is a, is a big one. Um, founderitis is another one where the founder, I always say like, it's a disease of the founder where they, yeah. they get in the way of sort of like me at the end of the first startup, I was unwilling to let go and fold yeah. and, and, and getting your own ego wrapped up into the business where you're more important than the venture. Yeah. And so, you know, founderitis is a big one. And the number, the last reason is burning out of cash. Everybody always thinks, oh, your company failed because you ran out of money. Well, it's actually the number 10 reason. It's sort of like if someone has some sort of health problem, maybe a heart problem, and they have a heart attack, it's the heart attack isn't what killed them. It was all of the things that led up to it. Maybe it was genetics. Maybe it was diet. Maybe it was environmental. Those were the reasons that the heart failed. Yeah. And ultimately, the body's, you know, not there anymore because of no heart. And ultimately the company's not there anymore because of no cash. But what led to that? Yeah. Those those are the reasons. And so I have that presentation that I deliver as many times as people want to hear it because I wish someone would have delivered it to me back in 2006. Yeah. So when you look at, uh, when you're doing investing or you're doing, um, looking at startups and stuff like that, is that your first thing you go to when you sit down with the founder or whoever that you're talking with? The first thing I go to is this person coachable. Mm. Is this person someone who can be humble and willing to take advice? And so that the, the, the whole person, right? Like look at the human, like yeah. who is this person and are they someone that I can invest my time and my network in reigns the n and rain stands for network regional accelerator and innovation network so if you can't if you're not willing if you're unwilling to work with a network of people and your ego's too wrapped up you've got founderitis right so that that's the first thing i size up and then i look at what is the market problem they're trying to solve and are they passionate about it or they do they just see dollar signs mm. i've had students come up to me from mba programs and say I want to make money and I want to retire in five years. Give me a good recurring revenue model. And I was like, try again. (laughs) That is not, if you want to approach it that way, you're welcome to. But the great companies are the ones that are started because the founding team recognized a problem in the market that no one was solving to their Mm -hmm. standard, whether it's Airbnb or Google or the coffee shop down the street. 
those founders created it because no one was providing a service to their standard. So really, do they have a solid problem statement? Are they the right person or people to solve that problem? And then do they have the grit? Are they willing to do the hard work? Are they willing to fail? And are they willing to get uncomfortable? Um, I get asked a lot, what's the definition of an entrepreneur? And I say it's two things. One, starting something from nothing. And two, learning to become comfortable being uncomfortable. Because you're often uncomfortable and lonely and scared and frightened and excited and all of the above. And that's uncomfortable in our culture. It's not something we're taught in the, you know, K to 12 education system or even, even in higher ed, they don't teach you that. Right. Well, they don't really teach failure. Um, You know, you have to pass in order to get to the next step. And Mm -hmm. if you fail, you're not rewarded. There's no benefit to it. You just have to do it again. Right. Well, there is, and I don't know if it still exists, but in San Francisco every year they did a conference called FailCon. Mm-hmm. And you could go and it was all the entrepreneurs who had failed and even the venture funds who had invested in failed companies. And all, the whole conference is about talking about failure. Okay. And I haven't looked that up in forever, but I, I hope it still exists. If it doesn't, someone should, should do a FailCon again. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So then um, you, you were working with some startups and things. How did that lead to Rain Catalyst? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, the Smart Ups Pub Talk, and I know you interviewed Nathan Lilgard on here previously. Yeah. Capital yep. Access Director. Yeah, so he and I met in the early days um, in Bend, actually. We both live in Eugene, but we met in Bend because we couldn't find the resources we need. We were competing against each other at the Bend Venture Conference, pitching our businesses. And then we're like, where do you <laughs> live? I live in Eugene. Oh, you live in Eugene. Okay, let's start this cool thing to, to bring people together. So um, the no, I'm, I'm forgetting what your question was again. Sorry, Brandon. How did, how did all, no, you're good. How did all of this kind of lead to starting Rain Catalyst? Oh, for, for the current, yeah. So um, there were some really smart people in Eugene and Corvallis who got together. The then mayors of Eugene and Corvallis, um, Eugene is where the Oregon, uh, University of Oregon is and Oregon State University is in Corvallis. Those two VPs of research from those two universities came together with the mayors. Some state reps and state senators came together. Some successful CEOs and business leaders And they said, we need to do something because there's really cool ideas spinning out of these universities, but those innovators are leaving because they can't find capital. They can't find mentors. They can't find lab space or kitchen space or anything. Yep. So it was their idea. And they, so they saw that there was this thing called smart ups and that entrepreneurs were gathering, but there was no structure around it. It was more just events. Yep. Oh, there's events. There's a lot of cool events. But if there's no strategic focus to we want to start X number of new companies and bring X number of revenue and capital to the area and we want to focus on these industries, it's not going to happen. Right. And and not going to happen in a thoughtful, efficient way. Yeah. So they started Rain. At the time, I was in between my two tech companies. And no, I, it was after my second tech company. I was on the exec team at Palo Alto Software, which is headquartered in Eugene. Started in Palo Alto, California. Okay. Eugene. And uh, my friend Sabrina's the CEO of, of that company. She was on the board of this group starting Rain. 
And they were looking for an executive director, which they ended up bringing a guy named Jim Coonan on in the early days to get it going. Mm-hmm. And he knew a lot of people at the legislature. So he was able to help get millions raised to ultimately create two physical accelerator spaces, one in Corvallis and one in Eugene in partnership okay. with the universities. And then about six, seven months after it started, they reached out to me and said, hey, will you join our team and be the first uh, venture catalyst, which is an entrepreneur who has had success and failure and knows is passionate about helping other entrepreneurs catalyze their ventures, hence mm-hmm. the name venture catalyst, not venture yeah. capitalist, very different. Yes. Which, which is big funders. Um, and so it was interesting because Sabrina is the CEO of Palo Alto. I'm on her management team and I'm being approached by the first executive director to join that company. And so I had to go to Sabrina and say, hey, Sabrina, I know you're on this board and I work for you. Will you support my transition over to that role? And by the way, will you provide funding to help with that role? <laughs> like, I'm leaving the company and will you fund my next role? And it's unusual, but she did it. And it was really amazing because she cares deeply about the entrepreneurial ecosystem nationally and globally. So I took the leap and that was July of 2000. um, Let's see, that was July. It was eight years ago. So whatever that is. Yeah. (laughs) And joined the organization and went from venture catalyst to interim executive director to executive director to now CEO. And we have expanded outside of the South Willamette Valley here in Oregon, as you know, up in beautiful Washington and Island in Skagit counties. And then also through a U.S. Department of State funded grant, we are supporting women entrepreneurship in Islamabad, Pakistan. Very cool. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah. So I want to touch on something just because I think it's, it's language that people don't typically hear that are not inside of the startup community. Mm-hmm. What does accelerator program, what does that kind of look like and what does that kind of mean for people? Mm. Yeah. So an accelerator is usually a physical space that entrepreneurs go to. And typically it's usually tech in the beginning anyway, right? Like tech stars, uh, mm-hmm. accelerator that exists and you can kind of model that. And then it's a series of, you know, eight, 10 weeks. Sometimes it's over three months. Founders get together and they go through a series of courses to advance their business and accelerate their business faster than if they were to do it on their own. So there's Mm -hmm. a cohort of other like-minded entrepreneurs. And then all these successful speakers come in to say, we're going to talk about competition. We're going to talk about marketing. We're going to talk about finances and capital and all of that. And then in traditional accelerators, when you graduate, there's some sort of investment made into your company. And then that accelerator program takes some equity in your company. Okay. That's the traditional model. Now there are very many different ways it's sliced and diced today. It, there's now accelerators for all kinds of businesses, small businesses, medium, large food, consumer product, tech, a lot of different ones. At Rain Catalyst, we've launched accelerators called Rainmaker, which was focused 100% on digital marketing. Mm -hmm. We focused Moneymaker, which was all about how do you manage your finances in your startup, in your small business. Um, we We are going to be launching a tech accelerator in the spring of 2024. Okay. For, um, 
um, entrepreneurs working on tech companies in Oregon and Washington to learn how to scale those companies. And we're leaning toward heavily towards finding founders who are women and people of color to yeah. go through that program through a federal funded grant. And then we have a venture fund partner named Portland Seed Fund that we can refer them to to raise funds if they meet all the criteria of the due diligence that the Portland Seed Fund is looking for. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you for, for walking us through that. Cause I think that's something your average, you know, small business owner or, right. or even local probably hasn't, hasn't heard of those programs or haven't, you know, gone through something like that. Yeah. And, and because of COVID, I mean, there's been a lot of great outcomes from the pandemic that now there's virtual accelerators. All of the mm -hmm. accelerators that we launched during the pandemic were virtual nine days after the, uh, the governor of Oregon shut down, we had, an accelerator spun up and online and we had over 200 entrepreneurs apply Wow! and 147 go through it and graduate so that we were able to pivot and respond because everybody on the rain catalyst team is an entrepreneur. Yep. And that helps us have the street cred with the entrepreneurs that we're serving, as you know, because you've worked with us and yeah, did a great job with us during the small business innovation fund. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was really fun. It was neat to be able to see that side and, um, you know, I love being able to, to work with the small businesses and a lot of those, uh, networks and relations, um, been kept up, you know, on, and mm -hmm. some of those people have, have stepped into that next step of what their business was at, uh, mm -hmm. and, and going into the next step. And so it's really cool to see that, um, yeah. see those continue to grow and stuff. Yeah, so, totally. um, you mentioned that you guys have worked in, you worked in Pakistan, um, working with the women and, and getting them into small business. What does that look like? Because I know, uh, the, obviously there's a lot of stuff in, in that area in the middle East and stuff where it's difficult for women to kind of, it's even more difficult there than it is here for them to kind of step into a new role. Yeah. Well, I think the, the first thing to understand is our business model. We only enter communities, whether it's a city, a county, a state, a country who invite us in. Mm -hmm. That is key right, is the invite in model. And so we had gotten invited, Rain Catalyst had gotten invited before the pandemic to support Pakistani entrepreneurs through a, a grant the University of Oregon had received. It was a million dollar grant they received. And they brought a delegation of women entrepreneurs here and faculty. And they came to learn, how do we do accelerators and uh, business support for startups in Oregon? And so I was invited in to talk to that delegation. And then that delegation selected three people out of the 40-some people they met that would travel to Pakistan and, you know, provide lectures and mentoring. And I was fortunate to be selected to be one of those three. Very and cool. so I traveled there. Now, I had also had traveled to Cairo, Egypt years before with Mercy Corps and was doing entrepreneurial development work with them. So I'm passionate about cultures all over the world, in particular cultures that feel overlooked, underestimated, disenfranchised, left out. And yeah. that in America, we have these ideas about Pakistan or Egypt. And, you know, we hear the news and we get a snippet of that single story. And that's very, very, very dangerous, that single story. And, and I want to talk about my friend Chimamanda Adichie from Nigeria, who has a TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story in a Minute. But um, it was 
life-changing. And then um, the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad sent me a grant uh, beginning of last year and said, we have another program where there are three universities in the Islamabad, Rawalpindi region who need help with their accelerators. One is an all-women college, and they need to create an accelerator. They don't have one. Mm-hmm. The other two have accelerators, but they it's all male faculty, and they need they need tools and techniques to attract more women students into entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And so we got selected for that. And as a matter of fact, as we sit here today, what is the date today? August the 16th, 2023. Next week, Wednesday, the 23rd, 13 Pakistani women are arriving in Eugene, Oregon with one male faculty, one male representative from the U.S. Embassy. They're here for a week. Wow. And we're taking them around the state. They're going to tour other accelerators. They're going to meet mentors. We're going to do mixers. We're going to do lectures. It's going to be an accelerated week of excitement. And these women are all entrepreneurs from the three universities that we worked with. And the purpose is to create linkages between the U.S. and Pakistan so that these women can go back home and run these businesses and provide for their families. Yeah, that's very cool. So I'm sure you guys are you're prepping for a big week then coming up. Yeah, we're actually I have a great team, so we're ready. They've we're, everything is buttoned up. People are lining up to meet them, to support them. And that's how you kind of know this is the right thing when things start to fall in place easily. Yeah. So what does entrepreneurship in Pakistan look like versus entrepreneurship in the U.S.? It's very similar. Um, The same barriers, right? How do you get capital? How do you get access to educational programs? How do you um, find staff, workers, talent? I think anywhere in the world, it's it's how do you find people, programs, physical assets, and capital Mm -hmm. for your venture? What what is different is this idea of an entrepreneurial ecosystem, right? And yeah. so it, it's a it's I don't even know who defined it, but Kauffman Foundation, Babson University, they've been studying it and talking about it for a long, long time. And essentially, it's this set of interdependent actors and factors. Actors are like us, right? The yep. people, the mentors, the investors, the educators. The factors are there's ten of them. There's like capital policymakers, markets, physical assets, culture, media, accelerator programs. And those actors and factors are coordinated in such a way that they enable productive entrepreneurship within a given territory. Okay. So so when we say the entrepreneurial ecosystem in the Pacific Northwest, we're talking about all of Oregon and Washington right now that we support because we've been invited there. In Pakistan, there's it's there's so many complicated regions and and very disparate. I mean, just to get from Islamabad into Gilgit Baltistan, which is the mountainous region, if you fly there, it's an hour. If you drive, it's twenty hours through like dangerous terrain and rocks falling, and <laughs> so and and wow. and it's an absolute beautiful part of the world because it's the only place I believe that three large. Um, huge mountains come together. Okay. There's K2, the Karakoram, there's the Himalayas or the Himalayas, and then there's another one I can't remember right now, but they all come together. And when you fly over it, the pilot points it out because it looks like this long, where all three mountains touch. It's kind of eerie. You see this like dark hole and it's, it's powerful. I mean, you get the chills just 
flying over it because you're yeah. like, there's energy here in these mountains that is intense. And then getting to see where uh, parts of where the Silk Road was. I mean, there's just a lot of history of entrepreneurship there, yeah. right? Like the Silk Road was all about entrepreneurship, right? Moving products, people selling across different regions of the world. And so it, it is a powerful place. And the grant is so that we can help these three universities work together as an ecosystem in the region, as opposed yeah. to just like a lot of universities work behind closed walls and doors, even here in America. Yes. And, you know, yeah. to, there has to be that third party catalyst. And that's why we call ourselves catalysts that we bring those disparate actors and factors together to provide a functional entrepreneurial economy. Yeah, that's very cool. And yeah, and we've talked about, um, uh, during the program and stuff, how entrepreneurship and doing these things, a lot of times people feel very on their own. They're, they're very lonely because there's no one else that's, that's, you know, within the business, they're the, the CEO, the owner, the founder. So it's lonely there. And then on the other side, you sometimes are like, is anyone else dealing with these issues or, mm -hmm. or working through these problems? And, and I think that's where that importance of camaraderie too, of just talking with other business owners and, and really seeing all of that. It is a lonely game and you should never do a business on your own. I always say it takes a community to raise an entrepreneur. And just like you shouldn't do an entrepreneurial ecosystem on your own, it takes multiple stakeholders, you know, all those stakeholders, the policymakers, the leaders, the educators, the mentors, everybody. In, an, in a startup, maybe it's your idea and you start it, but the single founder is one of the reasons startups fail. Yeah. You know, so finding complementary skill sets in people who share your passion for whatever that idea is and whether you choose to make them a co-founder or not, that, that, that intricacy in the beginning, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. Like, mm -hmm. how do you find your co-founders? And there's no one answer for any business. It's we're, we're humans. We're unique. We're not, yeah. no, no two are the same. And so the way you find a co-founder is going to be different for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so then, uh, with rain, how has that kind of continued to grow? You guys started with the, the universities and launching your first accelerators. Um, mm -hmm. how did it kind of expand from there? Yeah, great question. So we, because of the success we were having, we started getting calls from rural city managers and mayors and county commissioners and entrepreneurs living in rural communities in Oregon mm -hmm. and said, Hey, we see what you're doing in Eugene and Corvallis. We have economic development dollars out here in Florence on the coast or Oak Ridge or, you know, some of these smaller towns. And, and then of course, getting invited up into um, Skagit and Island counties this last year. That's what helped us expand. Very much like a good startup, you respond to the market need. Yeah. And so we were responding to the market need. The market was inviting us in saying, you have something we want. Can you bring it here? Mm -hmm. And that's when, we un that's when we unfolded this model of invite only. And I'd like to say I invented it, but I didn't. I basically stole pieces of this work that's being done all over the world, like uh, Ernesto Sorali with the Sorali Institute. He has a great TED talk. Everybody should watch. So if you, if you want to help someone shut up and listen, and he talks about how he has helped build economies and how the mistakes that he made. So we have adopted some of his model into what we do. 
There's the entrepreneurial ecosystem building work from the Kauffman Foundation and Babson that I mentioned earlier. And there's we're a part of this 300-member coalition in America called Start Us Up that the Kauffman Foundation created where we compare best practices. How do you do this in Kansas? And how do you do this in Texas or New Jersey mm-hmm. or Oregon? And so that we need a cohort as well, not just the entrepreneurs, but the service providers all need to be in a cohort because we're always raising money. It's yeah. probably one of the most stressful parts is every year I have to raise a couple million dollars to keep the engine going and and keep selling the value proposition of what we're doing. And that yeah. that can that can weigh on you. Right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, the TED Talk, the, the danger of a single story. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So I was fortunate that the very, the only friend that I had when I went to Drexel University, because remember, I was a non-traditional student. I was in my late 20s. I was working. So I didn't have time to like do frat parties and hang out with people. That wasn't really my style anyway. And I met this woman named Chimamanda Adichie. She's Nigerian. And she had already at that point, she was 19. She had already published a book of poems in London. Okay. Wow. And I was just like, wow, who are you? You need to be my friend. Like this, this is really great. So flash forward, she is an extremely successful author and she's written many, many books. She's won, she's won a lot of different awards for her work and she's done two TED talks. And the first one was a danger, the danger of a single story where she talks about, just like I was saying earlier, if you ask Americans, what do you think of Pakistan? There's usually, there's like, depending on who it is, but generally there's a story. Oh, this, that. Or if you ask about, um, even if you ask about Kamano Island, where you are, people are going to have a single story for the most part about that. Yep. And we need to question each other more about that because it's dangerous to have one story about any one person, place, or thing. Yeah. So I highly recommend. I mean, it's been viewed, I think, like, I don't know, 30, 40 million times or something. And then she has another TED Talk called uh, We Should All Be Feminists that actually Beyonce took a big piece of it and put it in one of her songs and won an award for it. And Chimamanda's um, success as an author stands on its own. But of course, once Beyonce takes a piece of your TED talk and puts it in, she got on the you know international stage and she's dined with the Obamas and she gets invited to write for the New York Times and the Atlantic. And she's delivered the commencement speech for Harvard and Princeton and Yale. And I mean, she really, and I think about, we were in the same class, like, <laughs> you know, but she is someone who inspires me. Because coming from Nigeria and then coming to America and navigating our complicated system Mm -hmm. and being a black woman and coming from Africa, right? Like there's all these layers of the single story of what people would, could have about you. Yeah. And she has a funny story that she talks about. It's actually in her danger of a single story where she says when she was at school in college, a classmate came up to her or someone she, I think she shared a dorm with came up to her and said, Oh, I'd love to hear some of your music of your music. Like as if she's going to put on some like sort of African beat music. And she played Mariah Carey (laughs) and and it was like, Oh, there was the single story this woman had. Right. And so it's a great example of, and how it ties into entrepreneurship is you can't have a single story about your market. You can't have a single story about your competitors. You constantly have to be challenging your assumptions and the assumptions of others 
And that takes a lot of physical and mental capacity to do. Yeah. So we've been talking about these, you know, the startup world, the the building of rain and all of these things. So as CEO, you, you've mentioned already, you have so many different things that are underneath that you have to keep track of, organize all that. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain a healthy work-life balance and what do you feel like that looks like? Yeah. Well, I as a as a woman in business, you're always trying to do that work-life balance thing, right? But I'll go back to when I was on the management, on the executive team at Palo Alto Software, and I got the CEO of the company on an interview with Ariana Huffington, and Mm -hmm. they served on the same panel together, and Ariana was asked this question, and I love her response because I use it now. She says, there is no such thing as work-life balance. When you're an executive or you're a CEO, it's work-life integration, Mm. and so it's how do you, because because work-life balance makes it seem like... There's a chunk of your day that you're the CEO or an entrepreneur, and then there's a chunk of your day that you're you're with your family or you're doing your own thing, and that is not true. So to, to be given the permission of, no, you merge the two together. Now, granted, most people are not fortunate enough to leave their job in the middle of the day, go to their kid's soccer game, or go or do what they have to do, and that's the beauty of being your own boss, right, and being an entrepreneur and being a leader where you get to set that but you also get all these stress with it. So if you can integrate your work and your life together, that's what's worked for me. And believe me, I make mistakes all the time. There's no like, give me the, the rule book for how to do work-life integration. It, this is why you have to have a therapist. You have to have a coach. You have to have, clients, <laughs> you've got to have mentors. You've got to surround yourself with people who are there to support you because you're doing something really big. And as I said, whether you're, you're opening a coffee cart or you try to compete with Intel, you're doing a big thing. Your scale is relative. Mm-hmm. And so how do you be the best version of you so that you can provide opportunities for others? Because that's why you become an entrepreneur. You become an entrepreneur not to, I want to make millions. You become an entrepreneur because you believe that you have leadership skills and you have the ability to create opportunities for others and solve a problem better than anybody else. Yeah, that is so well said. I think that is the the key to a successful and successful entrepreneur that people want to follow versus someone that's going to be a flash in the pan. Right. And and believe me, there's bad days. There are bad bad days and when you have your bad days because they happen, just try if you can withdraw from interacting with people for work. Like don't respond to that email. Don't respond to that. Text. <laughs> don't write, don't write that grant. Don't make that sales call, right? Don't pull that employee into your office. That's when you need to know that it's time. Like, like if you're feeling inside unsettled or angry, or we all know what these feelings are, mm-hmm. then, then you go do whatever brings you happiness, whether it's take a walk, go to the gym. Um, it could be eat a pizza. I don't care what it is, whatever brings you joy and comfort go do that. Yeah. What do you, do you have any daily practices or anything that you do that to try and keep yourself in this mode of, of moving forward and high energy and positivity? I'd love to say yes, because in my mind, I'm like a meditator. I'm a yogi, you know, like, in my mind. <laughs> right. um, but I struggle. My, my affliction is I have too much of an addiction to work and performance and producing it's also what helps me become a good producer. Mm-hmm. 
but it's like the Achilles heel of how do I, how do I chill out? Yeah. And so I, of course I listen to all these gurus and read these books and everything. And what works for me is, is, is what I'm calling micro meditations mm. because, because if it's like, someone's like, I got to go meditate. Oh, I feel like I need to have a, a nice little pillow somewhere, the lighting, the music, the candle. Like, I feel like it has to be a thing. Uh-huh. And that's too much pressure. So what I do is I literally, I could be sitting here like talking to you and I could just take a minute and breathe three times, like take three breaths, close mm-hmm. my eyes, picture the ocean in New Jersey where I grew up, the New Jersey shore, which I love and smell the beach and take four, five, 10 seconds, do a micro meditation. And then I'm, it brings me back. Yeah. And sometimes I have to do it three times. <laughs> how stressed out I am. Right. So, so those micro meditations removes the pressure of, I've got to go put on my yoga gear. I've got to go to the gym. I've got to, and, and all of those things are important to do. And I, I need to do a better job at those, but I also have to give myself permission and not beat myself up if I'm not doing that on a daily, regular basis. Yeah. Well, and I love one of the things you said is something my dad. So my dad was a serial entrepreneur, started multiple different companies. um, And uh, but that was one of the things he always talked about was he's like, my dysfunction is also my strength. He's like, I'm dysfunctional because everything is urgent and everything has to get done right now. And that's how he worked. Like a small problem pops up. He would attack it like it was the end of the world. And a big problem would pop up and he would attack it the same way. Right. He's like, that's why I was able to do what I did. Yeah. Um, so it's like, I can't be balanced. I can't be what you, you think, you know, maybe a guru would say like, oh, well, if you just do this, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I can't do that. Yeah. And I, I relate to your dad completely and he's right. I mean, there, it's the curse of, of joy and pain being able to produce. Like, it's just like, we always say, if you want something done, give it to a busy person because yeah. clearly that busy person does a lot. But I, I, I modify that and say, if you want something done, give it to a busy, productive person, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who, out there who are looking like they're busy and not a lot's getting done. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, who's the, where's the busy, productive person who's doing work-life integration mm-hmm. that those are the people that I want to surround myself with because we have mantras in our heads that we go through that keep us going. Yeah that are important in our own sort of psychological mindset in order to, I I want, I need to be that person in order to do for others. If I'm not doing it for myself, I can't show up for others. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think is one of the most important pieces of advice you could give to someone who is in that mindset of either wanting to become an entrepreneur or is just getting started? Yeah. Well, first thing is just start it just start doing something, take action every day, even if it's a little bit to move forward in whatever that intended destination is. And then secondly, like I said earlier, surround yourself with resources, mentors, um, go interview people you admire, ask them to tell you their story, what mistakes they made, how they get to where they are. People love to talk about themselves and, and do micro interviews with them. Just say, I need 15 minutes of your time, 20 minutes of your time, and then stick to that because I get coffee. I call it coffee to death. Can I take you to coffee? I want it. It's like, I want to be here and I want to help, but people need to be taught how to ask people for their time. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we're, we're not taught. So 
you know, how do you, how do you call the CEO of a company and say, I want to take you for 15, 20 minutes of coffee or a zoom? Like, how do you do that in a respectful way that that person says yes. And it's a skill. It, yeah. It's a skill that you, you need. And again, you're going to do it. You'll make mistakes and then you'll learn and, and then you keep going. You'll be uncomfortable and awkward until you get that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's that, uh, the keep doing it and like, Everyone is going to be different. So you're going to learn a little bit with every person. Exactly. And I think that's true for anything, right? Like if you're like, how do I be an incredible chef? Well, you don't just wake up one day and you make the most amazing meal on the planet. I mean, maybe you do, but it's like you read this cookbook, you watch that, you mess with the ingredients, you put a little bit too much of this in or not enough of that spice in. And then eventually you get there. It's a, it's a process. And anybody who tells you that, you know, starting a business is easy. And even if you have, there's no shortage of money out there, by the way, there's no shortage of capital to invest in companies. There's a shortage of founders who are capable and confident and coachable. Those three mm-hmm. keys: capable, confident, and coachable. That's what we have a shortage of. And when I get venture funds who will call me up and say, Caroline, I've got 2 million I need to deploy in the next few months, or I have to give this money back. Like, Send me capable, confident, and coachable uh, entrepreneurs working on cool, real-world problems because my reputation is on the line. Because if I send them someone and they're not coachable and they're not fun, they're not going to ask me again. They're going right. to be like, what you, you're a bad picker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're coming up on the hour. So what's next for Rain? Uh, what's some of the big projects coming up for you guys? Yeah, one of the big projects that we are involved in right now that I'm so excited about is with the IEDC, the International Economic Development Council. They're based in D.C. and they are the largest economic development um, like association, right? They do a lot of education. You get certifications. um, They support economic development organizations around the country. There was a grant put out by the U.S. EDA, the Economic Development Administration, a little over a year ago, where they wanted to place 65 Economic Recovery Corps fellows in under-resourced communities around the country, particularly those still struggling from whether it's the pandemic or climate issues or anything, you know, collapsed industries. Mm -hmm. So um, we had looked at applying for that grant. 30 million over five years. And I thought, gosh, I don't know. Like that's a lot for us. We're not that big. Yeah. Let me look around the country and see who would I give that money to. And that's when I called Nathan Ole, who's the CEO of IEDC and said, Hey, are you going after this grant? Because if I was the EDA, I'd give it to you. And he said, yeah, we're going after it. And I said, great. Who else are you partnering with? And here's what we could bring to the table. And so I talked about our venture catalyst model, how communities really need to invite these fellows in, Mm -hmm. how the fellows really need to be uh, independent contractors where they are the catalyst. They're not connected to the university. They're not like the employee of the university or the economic development group. They need to literally be a free agent. Mm -hmm. And their whole purpose is to advance whatever that economic development work plan is for that region and place them there for two and a half, three years. So Nathan was like, you're the missing piece. Like we, we need what you have in this program. So they applied and got the grant. So right now, host organizations all over the country are being organized, are interviewed, and potential fellows are applying 
yesterday was actually the deadline for fellows to apply. Several hundred individuals applied. Um, so we had over 500 host applications. Okay. And now what this group is trying to do that we're a part of is like, how do we make the match? How do we match the fellow with the host? And the IEDC will pay that fellow for the two and a half years. It's it's about a $225,000 value for yeah. that individual. And they get access to this nationwide cohort. We'll help provide education. And ultimately, it's to transform and accelerate, to use that word again, yeah. um, these under-resourced communities around the nation who just don't have the time or the resources to get beyond whatever their block is in their economy. Yeah. Very cool. That's such a cool program. I think it's so cool that you guys are involved in that. And, and especially being starting, you know, just in these small towns in Oregon and then now working on a national scale. It's, it's a really mm-hmm. exciting time for Rain Catalyst and excited to see where it goes. Very exciting. And um, I'm just I feel honored to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, I like to end every uh, podcast with some rapid fire questions. OK, so the good first. The first one is what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most in the last three months? In the last three months, I would say, okay, there's this fun British, it's a, like a stop motion animation series for kids called Sean the Sheep. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> have you heard of it? I think so. They, there's no dialogue, right? It's comedy and the, and the sheep is sort of like, <laughs> uh, he's, he's a little mischievous. He's, he's doing what he does and the, to, you know, make sure that the other flock of sheep are having a good time. Um, two of my grandsons love the show. And so I purchased Sean the Sheep stuffed animals. Nice. And when they came over and I gave it to them, the, the, the joy on their face, they, they thought it was really Sean the Sheep. I mean, they were, <laughs> of course, I leaned into it. I was like, well, you know, he comes alive at night and I hope I didn't scare him. But, <laughs> but you know, that excitement of I, my joy, I, I love seeing other people, like creating joy and opportunity for other people, especially for young people. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Who is the most influential person outside of your family in your life? I would go back to Chimamanda Adichie, who we talked about earlier. Um, you know, it's, it was over 20, it was about 25 years now that we met at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And the way that she uses her, her celebrity is astounding to me. And that's what I love about her, right? Like she, whether it's politics or feminism or education or women and girls, the rights of women and girls, yeah, he really shows how to do it. We all know there's a lot of famous people in the world and what they do is more self-serving. And so if I have a burning question or like right now I'm writing a book and I text her, I'm like, I need some help. Like, how do you get a literary agent? And you know, let's get together. She's in Lagos, Nigeria right now. She's coming back soon. And I want to get together with her and, you know, learn from her. How, how do I do this? Because I want to, I'm writing a book about leadership for the everyday leader. Because so many leadership books that are out there, even the Brene Brown dare to lead. I mean, all the, all the examples and quotes (laughs) are Marcus Aurelius or Thomas Jefferson, like dead people or, white men. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Or the women are Mother Teresa and Barbara Bush. I'm like, really? So I want <laughs> I, at Campbell's Soup or the examples. Like I want to write a book about leadership for the everyday leader. Yeah. 
Well, and I think what that note is is really important. My brother-in-law and I, um, who were kind of like sister companies, mm-hmm. um, talk about this. He's like, for the small business owner, there's there's getting the right people on the bus, but sometimes you can't afford the right people. As a small business owner, you can really afford what you can afford. Right. And so sometimes you have to, I won't say make do in the way that like these people are bad, but just you can't go out and hire, you know, a hundred thousand dollar manager for a certain department. Right. Yeah. So I want to include quotes from people like you in the book. You know, I, I want you, you've got, you're smart, you're connected. You're doing this really cool podcast. You've got your own entrepreneurial venture. You you're doing stuff. The world needs to know how you're doing it. Like, what are your quotes? Right. That's what I want. I want to include the unsung hero, the people that we don't get to hear about that can glean so much brilliance and share so much brilliance that we can glean from them. That's what I want to include. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, be sure to let me know when, as you get, you know, I know that's a long journey, but as you get closer, we'll definitely have you back on the podcast to talk about that. That'd be great. Um, all right. This is a fill in the blank question. I know this is weird, but I've always wanted to blank. Um, fly jets. When, (laughs) when I was a kid and my dad was in the air force and he'd take us to the air force bases and I just would sit and those huge jets would fly over. And I even took the ASVAB test in high school to go into the air force. And then my, my dad actually talked me out of it. He was like, no, you know, wait until you go to college, go in as a, as a, as a captain Mm -hmm. or an officer rather, not a captain. And so flying jets, I have, I don't have that anymore. (laughs) Uh, that would have been that would have been a cool career yeah very cool (laughs) um who is an interesting or fascinating person that i should interview next Mm. so it's i'm going to go back to sort of the unsung hero kind of thing it would be someone we don't know like maybe a single mom working two jobs trying to raise their children uh someone who used to be homeless who's now thriving and helping others hospice workers you know we just my husband and i just lost a friend of 30 years and the hospice workers sent us a rose to the house. I mean, so the those people like the everyday person just really yeah. doing it. And so I would challenge you to find someone that you don't know yet, but is doing really cool stuff that yeah. we should hear about. So actually, there is a woman. There's a woman here in Oregon. Her name is Nancy. And she started a, a nonprofit called Opportunity Oregon, and she's hoping to scale it. But right now she just got invited into every prison system in Oregon and she's doing career development to help when people transition out of prison to get jobs. Yeah. So, you know, reduce recidivism rates, create empowerment, duh, right? And yeah. so she's doing really cool stuff. So she'd be nice. someone to interview. All right. All right. And lastly, what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self? <laughs> Gosh. Um go live abroad, travel internationally and not just travel, but actually live in another culture mm-hmm. and live somewhere that, you know, you, you wouldn't pick like somewhere you're going to be uncomfortable yeah. because growth comes out of being out of your comfort zone and having experienced the cultures of Pakistan and Egypt, it, it, it just changes who you are as a person. I'm changed internally as a result of experiencing that. And you can see movies, you can talk to people over Zoom now, but being there, living there, the smells, the the ground, the foods, the culture, you, you can't experience that 
unless you're there. So I wish I would have had the opportunity or even knew like how to do that. Again, there was no internet then, but like, how do you maybe do an exchange program when I was in high school or something to do that? And I, I would love it if we incorporated that into every high school program in America that you have to go live abroad for six months. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Absolutely. It would definitely change America. It would change the outlook of the world. I I agree. And our, our single stories would probably fade away. The danger of those single stories to bring it back to Chimamanda again, who, who, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in my interview, I do my best to celebrate and lift up other women Mm-hmm. And and that's like something I intentionally try and do. And and so that's something I would, anybody who's listening, male, female, doesn't matter, non-binary, it doesn't matter, lift up other people, share the stories of other people and create opportunities. So the last thing I'll share is I always tell everybody I mentor, especially the kiddos, the, the at-risk youth, I say life comes down to three things and they all have to do with opportunities. One, knowing how to accept an opportunity when it comes your way because it's right for you Two, knowing how to pass on an opportunity because it's just not right for you. And three, likely most importantly is how to offer opportunities to others. And I think you could sum up everything in life in one of those three categories. Yeah. So that's what I'll leave you with. Awesome. <laughs> thanks well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to coming back. All right. All right, and Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one. Well, a big thank you to Caroline Cummings for joining me on the podcast today, and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other Islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash podcast. That's CaminoCommons.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.